Isn't that the best sheepdog ever? Maybe never. Oh, good morning, everybody. Great to see you here. We finished up our series last week called A Better Way, uh, and this gets us back to the Gospel of John. Hope that's okay with you guys. For the next month, we'll be there. Uh, let me pray for us as we get into this. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for being our good shepherd. Uh, not just a good shepherd, but the good shepherd. And in this passage, you reveal such deep truths about you and about how you take care of us out of your love for us. And so we rejoice, but we also are humbled by it because we sit here today knowing we're not that nice, we're not that smart, we're kind of like sheep, a little bit goofy, a little bit, little bit crazy, a little bit unruly, and yet you have deigned to love us and made it possible for us to be members of your family. And we do not grasp it fully, but we rejoice in it. So as we open up your word, uh, give us insight to understand it, uh, to apply it, and to revel in it. And we pray all this in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. Today we're in John chapter 10, as uh, Betty just read for us. And we're uh, talking about Jesus, who identifies himself in this passage as a shepherd. We don't tend to think of shepherds as heroes. I mean, uh, think about it. Anybody here ever grow up and maybe we're in a, a nativity scene, right? Uh, if you were, right, you and you were assigned to be a shepherd, uh, it wasn't a particularly tough or challenging role. Uh, you just kind of stand there, look at the baby once in a while, smile, basically try to stand upright, and you're doing great at your job. In truth, however, the life of a shepherd is very demanding and rigorous with long hours, and it required a deep kind of commitment and an expectation to care for an entire flock of sheep. There was an old fable that goes around about an old shepherd traveling with a young boy and a donkey, and behind the, the three of them were this, uh, this flock of sheep. The first village that they walked into the man was leading the donkey along, and the villagers said, man, you're a goofy guy, man. You should be on the donkey rather than leading the donkey. So to appease the villagers, he sat up on the animal and rode it out of town. When they came to the second village, the villagers saw the old man riding the donkey and complained that it was seemed to be cruel that he would be riding the donkey and letting the child walk along while he rode. So he jumped off of the animal and rode it out of town. Let the young boy ride it. When they entered the third village, the villagers said, young boy was maybe just way too lazy, making the old man walk, and that the old man was encouraging this boy's lazy lifestyle. So they suggested that maybe both of them should ride the donkey. So the old man hopped back on the animal and took off for the next uh, part of the journey. By the time they got to the fourth village, the villagers accused him of cruelty to the donkey that two people would be riding the same animal. The last time they saw the old man, he was walking down the road carrying the donkey. That's where the fable stops, right? I reckon the moral is that you can't really please everybody, and maybe a better moral is that maybe you shouldn't try to please everyone. Uh, and this kind of reminds me of something about Jesus. He does not seem through the first 10 chapters of John, 
to be all that interested in appeasing people's ideas about how he should act or how he should behave. You notice that? He just kind of says what he says. He tells them who he is. And the truth of the matter is this. What people thought about him would ultimately determine their eternal destiny, not his. In fact, he only seemed to care about what his Father in heaven thought about him, and he only seemed to care about how best to care for the sheep. That's the analogy that Jesus is giving us in this chapter of John, which is all about the Good Shepherd. In fact, back in verse 6, if you remember from our last message from the Gospel of John, back on 3 July, Jesus talked about spiritual stuff through the illustration of a shepherd. He did that because everybody in the crowd understood shepherds and shepherding. Everybody got it that there was a communal corral in every village where if the uh, shepherds wanted to bring the uh, flock in, they would put these uh, sheep in the communal uh, corral and keep them there overnight. Then the next morning, the shepherd would go in, call his particular flock out, and they would go back out into the countryside to graze and such. But more than that, many of uh, Israel's Heroes had been shepherds. Moses was once a shepherd in the backside of the wilderness. David, before he became king, was introduced to us as a shepherd boy in Bethlehem. Jacob and his sons lived lives of wandering shepherds in the Middle East. Even the prophet Amos was found among the sheep herders in Tekoa, a small village southeast of Bethlehem down in Judah. And that's where God called him to be a prophet. But now in verse 11 of chapter 10, Uh, which kind of continues the thrust of Jesus' teaching on this shepherd theme, Jesus makes a very bold statement that I think we often kind of miss the uh, emphasis of because of the translation that we have in English. He says this, I am the good shepherd. You saw that, right? That's his statement, I'm the good shepherd. It's the first time he says it quite like that. And so he's going to repeat that statement, which in the Greek language tells you, hey, wait a minute, there's something really important here. Repetition in Greek is for emphasis. So we don't want to miss out why this is so important. And the why that we miss it is because the English doesn't carry the same force and intensity of Jesus' original statement. You read this in English, and grammatically what you have, a subject and a predicate and an object and one modifier, I am the good shepherd. So we think, oh, okay, that's sort of like, you know, maybe any occupation. There's some good ones, and there are some bad ones. Some people are pretty good at the job, and some people are not so good, right? We experience this in our world. We're not unknown to this phenomenon. You've got some good doctors. You've got some not-so-good doctors. You don't know what grades they got in school by looking at the, the parchment on their walls, right? There are good secretaries. There are bad ones. Good handymen, bad ones. Good financial advisors, and bad ones. So we might conclude that Jesus is saying, look, there's some good shepherds, and there's some bad shepherds, and I'm one of the good ones. The problem is that that is not even close to what Jesus is actually communicating here. It'll help if we just go back and translate what Jesus says literally from the Greek. When we do, it hits us in the face, because this is what he says. I am the shepherd. The good one. Here's what's noteworthy. There's an object before the modifier, the good. The good is an adjective, but in Greek, placing an article like the in front of the adjective before good tells you that there are 
there's an intensity of the feeling there. So what Jesus, what Jesus is not saying here is that, look, there are some bad shepherds and some good ones, and that he's one of the good ones. Nope, here's what he's saying. There are bad shepherds, but I am the good one, the only good one. I'm in a class all by myself. No one out there can compare to me. No one can compete with me. I'm a shepherd like no one's ever been a shepherd before, and no one else claiming to be a shepherd can be anything other than a bad one. I am the supreme shepherd. I am the greatest shepherd. Now, I'll tell you why getting this is so key. It's important because it helps us understand the completely negative reaction we see to this at the end of the paragraph, which we'll get to before we're finished. But this passage contains the fourth of the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. I bring them up to you every time we get a new one. Uh, So far, here's the list. I am the bread of life, right? As bread sustains physical life, Jesus claims to be alone the one who sustains spiritual life. I'm the light of the world, right? The world lost in darkness, Jesus alone is the beacon of hope. I'm the door of the sheep, he says. Jesus alone, we talked about this on the 3rd of July, He's the, he is the entry and the sole entry point into salvation. Now he's saying, I'm the good shepherd. He cares for and watches over those who are his. By the way, the most popular symbolic representation the early church used when they were being persecuted in Israel and they had to live in the catacombs in Rome and they would scratch drawings on the walls there, the motif that was most found was that of the good shepherd. They loved it. An unbeliever, in hearing what I've just been saying, might respond, okay, okay, you say he's a good shepherd, but there have been a lot of religious leaders before and after him. Some of them might ask, okay, what makes him so great? What's so great about Jesus being the good shepherd? Well, fictitious person, great question, glad you asked it, because there are four things about Jesus highlighted in this passage that uh, about the good shepherd that makes him actually one of a kind. And here's the first one. He sacrifices himself for the sheep. Verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Immediately after identifying himself as the good shepherd, Jesus proceeds to talk about all the other shepherds out there. The bad ones. Why are they all the bad ones? Because there's only one good shepherd from a spiritual perspective that lays down his life for the sheep. To make the point here, just to remind you, if you can, of any other God in any other belief system ever who gave his life so that believers in that God could live. Nobody? Nobody? Good luck. Jesus is totally alone. Jesus goes on to describe, spiritually, all the other bad options. The bad shepherds that people tend to believe in that aren't him. And my guess is they've also got some bad sheepdogs like the one we saw on the screen. Here's what Jesus says, starting in verse 12. He who is a hired hand, and not a shepherd, not a good one at least, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And then Jesus goes on to repeat what he said earlier. Remember what we talked about? Repetition is for emphasis. 
And again, he says, I am the good shepherd. Then he adds some additional thoughts. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He says that again, too. I found out that sheep herding is kind of risky, dangerous, because you had to leave the sheep that were maybe in the corral in your village, where it was uh, kind of in a protected environment. Uh, you had to lead them out into the countryside where they could fall prey to any number of predators. And that makes the, the shepherd a lot more vulnerable out in the countryside. And the danger continued, even when you put the sheep into these countryside corrals at night. We talked about that whole thing back on 3 July. Remember when David, who was a shepherd boy, stood before King Saul? And King Saul wanted to know, who are you? Where do you come from? This is what David said to him. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair and struck it and killed it. Wow. A bear or a lion, really? That sounds pretty dangerous. I dug around and found a stat that blew me away. It's from the American Sheep Industry Association. The stats are from 2019. That's the latest year I've got the, they got the stats published so far. They reflect on that year, 2019, that predators killed 228,000 sheep and lambs in the United States. Just the United States. Predation accounted for 38% of all sheep and lamb deaths. And this was after ranchers spent $56 million dollars that year in lethal and non-lethal predation control measures, whatever those were. So who were the predators? Well, we got wolves, we got coyotes, we got bears, we got mountain lions, got bobcats, got foxes, got eagles, got vultures, ravens, domesticated dogs, and my personal favorite now up on the screen, yeah, feral pigs. <laughs> I did not see that one coming. So shepherding was and still is dangerous. I have a cool book in my study called The Land and the Book, written back in 1911 by W.M. Thompson. He took a pilgrimage to the Middle East. And what he did was to compare life of the shepherds then with what the Bible sort of described life as the shepherds were back in, in Bible in Jesus' day. And he interviewed working shepherds, right? And he wrote this, and I put it on the screen for you. I've listened with intense interest to these shepherds' graphic description of downright and desperate fights with savage beasts, when the thief and robber come, and they do come, the faithful shepherd has often to put his life on the line to defend the flock. I have known more than one case where the shepherd had literally to lay it down in the contest. One poor fellow, instead of fleeing, actually fought off three Bedouin robbers until he himself was hacked to pieces, dying among the sheep that he was defending. But here's, here's the difference. The difference between the dangerous occupational hazard of a shepherd and Jesus himself. What Jesus says is, I lay my life down. I give away my life. So I don't want you to see Jesus' death as some kind of accidental, unintended tragedy, some occupational hazard. He gives his life away. He says this four times in our passage you just read. 
Talk about repetition. Twice would be for emphasis. Four times. That means whatever he's saying about this issue, it becomes of utmost importance for us to grasp. Verse 11, good shepherd lays, gives his life down for the sheep. 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, the father loves me because I lay down my life. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. Now, this is so basic and so vital to what we believe as Christians. And it's so repeated throughout the New Testament that if we don't get it yet, today's the day to get it, right? Two important things implied by this. One, Jesus' death was voluntary. Voluntary. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't like Jesus got himself into trouble somehow, uh, did some really bad things. You know, oops, he gets arrested. They killed him. No. It was all part of the plan. And there was no plan B. It wasn't a tragedy or a murder from a human level, yes, but not from the divine level. Revelation 13 calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All part of the divine plan from the creation of the universe. So, really, you didn't think God knew how man would go off the rails and need a savior? Sure he did. Now, about six or eight months after this very conversation we're reading in John's Gospel, Jesus has, by that time, died and risen from the dead. And Peter and some other disciples are in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost, just like Jesus promised, and they bust out preaching the Gospel everywhere, and they're spreading the message of Christ everywhere. And Peter is preaching to the crowd, many of whom were among those who clamored for Jesus' death. Right. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and mighty wonders and mighty signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, dummies, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, i.e. the Romans. So you see what Peter does here? See how he combines human responsibility? Yeah, you killed him. But God planned it all along. There's this sovereign manipulation of events because Jesus volunteered his life. That's number one, voluntary. Second thing we have to get, reality, Jesus did not die for himself. He died for the sheep. He died for us, for you and me. He certainly didn't die for his own sins. Can we all agree with that at least? He didn't have any sins to die for. He died for the sins of the sheep. That little phrase, for the sheep, it shows up in verse 11, verse 15. It means literally, on behalf of, or even better, in the place of, or maybe even better than that, as a substitution for. He died so they wouldn't have to die for their sins. He took their death that they were supposed to die for. You want to know why the Good Shepherd is so great? That's why. Oh, I remember, right? That Jesus is the shepherd and we're the sheep, right? He took all the filth, all the muck, all the mire, all the sin of the sheep, and bore that upon himself so that by faith in him, we wouldn't have to suffer that death. Isaiah 53 says it. You probably know the verse. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, 
And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. By the way, spiritually speaking, that's how sheep get into the fold to begin with, right? Acknowledging their sin and the need for the death of someone else to clean up their life for them, to take away their sin. So that's why he's so good. That's why he's so great, actually. Number one, he sacrifices for the sheep. The second one is so great, so great is that he he's, uh, dies for the sheep. He also does this. He knows his sheep. The third thing. He's so great because he knows his sheep. We see this in verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. Boy, have we heard that before? Oh, maybe, maybe just twice or three times. Before. I know my own and my own know me. Just as my Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Boy, there's some things repeated there, right? Now, frankly... At first, this might sound just a little bit odd to us. What does this mean? He knows his sheep. I mean, to the average person, a flock of sheep, they all kind of look like. Remember the video? Could you distinguish one sheep from the other and the dogs being chased, being chased around by the sheep? No. A sheep is a sheep is a sheep to us. A cow is a cow is a cow, right? But that's how much we know. Ask a shepherd, and he'll tell you, oh, you got that all wrong, dude. Sheep are so unique. So individual, some are large, some are small, some are squatty, some are lean, some have quirks, others have differences in their personalities, some like to lay around, others like to kind of wander off. They're all unique and different. Jesus says, hey, I know my sheep. I like that because it means he knows all of the differences between each of us sitting here. In fact, it's those differences that make each of us so unique and distinguishable. And what this tells me is, I don't have to be somebody else. I don't have to desire what someone else has. I don't have to have the same gifts as another person in terms of spiritual gifts. I don't have to be Billy Graham, right? I don't have to be a musician. I don't have to be a great, uh, have a great voice. I don't have to be a Pavarotti, right? I don't have to have a bubbly personality. I can just be who I am. You can be who you are that God made you. And guess what? God's okay with that. Totally okay with that. He knows his sheep, us individually, and he works with that. There's also comfort in the fact that he knows his sheep, isn't there? Think about it. After knowing all about you and all about your failures, all about mine, all about our propensities, he loves us anyway. Look at the word know in these verses. It's a word, uh, Greek word that means uh, a deep, profound, intimate, affectionate knowledge that people who have really, really, really close relationships enjoy, like a husband and wife, or like best friends, Right? They really know each other. I know my sheep and my own know me. But what it says in the next verse is kind of interesting. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So the knowledge that Jesus has of each of us sitting here is as complete and intimate as the relationship between God and his Son. As of each other. Imagine how deep and close that relationship is. They've known each other since time and eternity passed. A lot of time to develop that relationship over the eons, right? So in essence, there ain't nothing about you that Jesus doesn't already know. Absolutely nothing. You know why that's so cool? Here's why it's cool. You're never going to surprise God. You're never going to stun Him. You're never going to do something or think something, or have a motive for something that God's going to be totally shocked by. He's never going to go, whoa, I never knew that about you. I never knew you were like that. Well, now that I know you're like that, I don't love you quite as much as I used to. 
No, that's never going to happen. You never really got a shotgun. Here's the truth. Nothing is going to diminish his love for you as his sheep once you come to faith in him. You're never going to have to worry that he's going to find out something about you that's going to change that. He's going to be unchangeable, right? God is not like the old rich grandfather whose family knew that he was losing his hearing. So he goes to the doctor, and the doctor prescribes him a hearing aid. And it worked great. He goes back to the doctor two weeks later and said, man, these things are fantastic. I can hear conversations going on in the next room. Doc said, oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I bet your family's really glad that you can hear now. He goes, well, I haven't really told them. I've just been listening and getting to know my family better. Uh, guess what? I've changed my will twice already. Okay. We don't have to worry about that with God. It's never going to happen between us and God. He knows everything about you already, and he still loves the socks off of you. Maybe Psalm 139 will lock this in for you. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. I mean, known me, everything about me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search at my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. So look, he's got the dirt on you. He's got the dirt on me. He knows each of us, and still he cares for each of us and loves each of us nonetheless. I'll add to it that he knows us perfectly. We know him barely in comparison, don't you think? Right? Wouldn't you agree? In comparison to what God knows about you, you know him barely. Your knowledge of God is, is really incremental, right? I hope, it's, I hope it's growing over time, but it's probably not yet complete. Peter encouraged us to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, but God knows us already, absolutely, totally. Will there ever be a time when we do know him fully? Yeah, but not probably on this earth. When you get a resurrected body and you're up in glory before his throne face to face, then it says we're going to get to know him completely. Peter Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see, but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Ah, but then we'll see. Then we'll see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know him fully, as I am fully known. Let me just add one more thought to this. If Jesus is willing to be your shepherd, why would you settle for anything less? If you can have Jesus as your shepherd, how about this? Accept no substitute. Don't even try to live your life through somebody else's life. Right? Any leader, any pastor, any mentor, any spouse, any friend is at best an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. Yet some people get so tied in to expecting someone here on earth to do what only Jesus can pull off for you. Because he is not just a good shepherd, he is the good shepherd. The only good shepherd. It's a mistake, really, when people try to make any kind of a leader here on earth a person who meets all their needs. That's why I say, accept no substitute. Third reason Jesus is so great, he unites his sheep. This I didn't see coming, right? Jesus is a good shepherd. He unites his sheep. We see this in verse 16. Because he then says, I've got other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I love this. I love this. Our shepherd is so great, he wants to open up the corral to as many sheep as he can. He wants to expand the flock. 
I have sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about believers from outside of Judaism. We already know that a lot of people in Israel totally rejected, still do reject Jesus, right? But some did believe. Those that are did, those that did are in Jesus' flock. But just like the Israel of old was intended to be a draw for all the nations, you know, people around the nations will still look at, look at the Israel and go, man, we don't know what kind of things going on over there, but that God is obviously fantastic. We ought to be worship that God rather than this one over here that's not doing anything for us. Well, Israel didn't do a great job at that. Right? God's purpose is to expand the flock to believers from all nations. I mean, we just read in John chapter 9 about a blind man who had been kicked out of the fold, right? Because he believed that Jesus was from God. The Pharisees excommunicated him from Judaism. They unsynagogued him. Jesus immediately scoops him up and brings him into his fold. But what I read right here is Jesus isn't just interested in keeping this a Jewish thing. He wants to go to the highways and the byways and compel as many of us as he can from everywhere to come into the fold through faith in him. I don't know how many of you guys are Jewish, but if you're a Gentile sitting here, we are living proof that that's what Jesus is up to, right? Pharisees didn't live out their plan. But it was predicted in their own scriptures that God's plan was to reach not just Jews, but all nations. The Pharisees basically divided the world up into two groups, Jews and everybody else. Jews and non-Jews, Jews or Gentiles. The Gentiles were the unclean, the unsavable from their perspective. Pharisees would go to the streets of Jerusalem pulling their cloaks really close together so they wouldn't brush up against any Gentiles and get cooties, right? In fact, some of the Pharisees 2,000 years ago prayed this as part of their morning prayer. Dear God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Ladies, I'd like to be married to that guy. Somebody says, no, I would not want to be married to that guy. Are you thinking about it, really? you think that guy would be a good guy? No. In fact, some of the Pharisees said that God created the Gentiles for one purpose, as kindling for the fires of hell. That's, that's kind of touching. No, it's not touching. It's awful. Your, your purpose is to be firewood? I don't think so. That's, that's what they thought. Into this world walks Jesus. He says, you know what? i got a plan. Much bigger than just this Judaism fold. Not just the Jews. I'm going to make this fold so big, so welcoming, there's going to ultimately just be one big flock and one good shepherd. He's speaking of his church. The blending of Jew and Gentile together. The racism of God was never what God was about. The racism of the Pharisees, I mean, was never about what God was about. The plan was to have everybody in the world hear about the good news and join the flock. And we read this earlier, didn't we? Maybe, maybe, maybe you remember it. John 3.16, for God so loved the Jews. No, God so loved the world. The world encompasses Jews and Gentiles. Even the Pharisees bought that, that he gave his only son. Right? This was a revolutionary concept. Did you know that even Peter had a hard time with Jesus letting, um, with Jesus letting anybody but Jews into the fold? In Acts chapter 16, uh, 10, Peter is hanging out with a buddy down in the seaport of Joppa. And he sees a vision. He's really getting hungry. He sees heaven open up and a big sheet with the four corners attached to the globe. And in the sheet were all kinds of critters that uh, Jews would never, ever eat. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, being Peter, says, ain't no way I'm doing that. I'm never going to eat anything that's common or unclean. And God says, what I made clean 
do not call common. Now, once enough was, once was enough for Peter. This scene was repeated three times, which indicates that Jesus, that Peter was not particularly persuaded at the first two times. Well, this vision was all a setup because while Peter is still thinking about this vision, there's a knock on the door. Some guys are there to invite him to Cornelius' house, who's a Gentile ruler in the Roman government. And so the Holy Spirit says, go with these guys without intervention, without hesitation. So he goes all the way to Caesarea, down on the coast with these guys. And I just want to listen to, listen to the first thing that Peter does, even as he's obeying what the Holy Spirit is telling him. This is the first thing he says when he walks in the door. This is priceless. Here's what he tells these Gentiles. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Really nice touch, fella. But make them make feel, well, feel cool. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Peter had a real problem with God reaching out to anybody who wasn't Jewish. But Jesus was opening the doors wide to anyone who would come. And that in the end, there would just be one flock and one good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lord for the Germans and the Jews and the Arabs and the Spaniards and the Asians and the Africans and the Europeans and the Americans and your neighbor next door. That's who he is. If he's the only good shepherd and everyone else are pretenders, then he's got to cover the globe, right? By the way, that's the best way to view people. Revolutionary way for you to start looking at people all around you. They are potential sheep in Jesus' flock. Bank secretary, potential sheep. Business executive on the golf course, potential sheep. Policeman writing you a ticket, potential sheep. That's why you want to treat everybody around with great respect, because everybody is somebody that Jesus loves, and all are potential sheep in Jesus' flock. Jesus wants everybody who will come to come to the flock. So don't think of anyone as beneath Jesus' ability to love them into the flock. And because he does love them, so should we. Finally, our fourth and final reason Jesus is so great, he lives for the sheep. So he sacrifices himself for the sheep. He knows his sheep intimately. He unites his sheep, and he lives for the sheep. We see this starting in verse 17. For this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I've got the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he's got a demon as insane. Why listen to him? Others said, hmm, these don't sound like the words of some, somebody who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So what is Jesus referring to in verses 17 and 18? Lay down and take it up again. Yeah, his death and resurrection. That would be the ultimate sign of, one, his messianic calling, and two, his deity. He's predicting his own death and resurrection. Why is that so important to being a good shepherd? Because it means he's never going to leave us. Remember what Jesus said after he died and rose from the dead? He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, the end of the world. Only somebody who lives forever can make that kind of a promise. If I were to tell you I'll be with you to the end of the age, I'm not going to be able to pull it off, Sorry. Only someone who lives forever can fulfill that kind of promise. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, man, well, he rose from the dead, and he hung out for a little while, but after a few weeks, he takes his followers up on the Mount of Olives, and then he ascends into heaven. So he left us. Sounds like a broken promise to me, but it's not, and here's why. 
when Jesus was, was on earth, he could only be in one place physically. He was limited to that physical body. From heaven, now united with his Father, he can make promises like, I'll never leave you orphans. I will come to you. And he did this because he sent his Spirit to be with each of us. So now his presence could be everywhere on the earth that a Christian is. In addition, hope you know that Jesus is up in heaven, and he's been kind of occupied with some good stuff the last couple thousand years. He's been working on our behalf. Some of you are thinking, what do you mean he's been working on our behalf? Well, he did finish the work on the cross, right? That's a good thing. But now he's been very busy working in heaven called intercession. We see this in the great book of Hebrews. It describes Jesus' high priestly role for us, ongoing role for us. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives for the sheep. He pleads your case before the Father. I mean, we pray for each other, right? That's a good thing. We elders pray for the church. We pray for you guys, and we should. As pastors, we should be praying for our flock, but I'm saying that because I want to, be, I want to compare this with another statement. As cool as that might sound, Jesus prayed for you this week. He spoke to the Father on your behalf this week because you and I have an adversary that has access to heaven named Satan. Just check out Job chapter 1. Satan is always walking around condemning us, walking around accusing us. And Jesus is up there going, hey, I got this, Father. I got this. You don't have to pay attention to this knucklehead. I know this guy's always accusing people. Jesus is saying, I've got, he's one of mine. This person is a person of faith. I've already bought that one. I've already paid for that sin. Yeah, he sinned, but you know what? That's all he paid for. He's clearly not a problem. He's praying for us. He's interceding for us on our behalf. How can you lose with a shepherd like that? That ought to do something to us. When we realize that this Jesus is the supreme, good, and great shepherd that we serve, it should embody us with praise. Let's just suppose. Maybe not. Heard a story about a woman named Nancy. She worked really hard, but didn't make a lot of money. She lived on the borderline of poverty. Despite this, she was always radiant and happy and always had a smile, a good, a good outlook. And people looking at her life would say, there's no real reason why she should be like that. No real, good reason for her to be that happy. Unless you finally get to know how much she really loves Jesus. But she had a friend who was always kind of gloomy and glum and negative. And the friend told her, said, man, Nancy, I know you're happy now, but what about later? And Nancy said, what do you mean? Well, suppose you get fired. Suppose you get laid off. Suppose you come down with some dreadful disease that's going to kill you. Or suppose, and Nancy said, stop. Stop. Stop it. I don't suppose anything. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And she said, I think it's all those supposes that you're thinking about that's making you so miserable. So the question is, how do we live? Do we live in supposed land? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if the economy? What if my house? What if my job? What if my health? Or do we live in the world of the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. He's the good shepherd. The only good shepherd. He's already died for me. Now he's living for me. What do I got to lose? Suppose I die. Oh yeah, I'll see, heaven. Not bad. Not a bad deal. One final thought, then we're out of here. Sheep are helpless. I got such a kick out of the fact that Jesus compares us to sheep. 
they're utterly helpless. You know, the sheep can come into a condition called cast. A sheep that maybe ends on its back in some kind of a depression in the ground where its legs are sticking up in the air. We might have a, such a picture up there. It's called a cast sheep. They cannot turn themselves over. They're like a turtle upside down. They can move their legs, but they can't figure out how to get up. If that happens, circulation, especially in the legs, begins to get cut off, and within hours, the sheep will die. Utterly helpless, unless the shepherd finds it and rescues them. And you know this? Sheep will eat anything. Poison stuff. Poison weeds. Poison roots. They don't have a discriminating palate, so they need the shepherd to make sure that they are grazing in healthy places. Something else. You know what a sheep does when it's attacked? They're helpless. It's not like the flock has like a, a, a sort of a, a you know martial arts trained sheep that are going to kind of protect the rest of the flock. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Nothing. What a sheep does when a wolf attacks? Some might actually run, but many of them will just stand there and do nothing. They don't bleat. They just stand there and die. Point is, they're helpless. They need the sheep to rescue them. So the guest this morning, I wonder whether there's anybody who would finally say yes to this good shepherd for all the great things he does for us. Maybe you recognize that you're a sheep, you're a sinner, you need help. You don't need any old shepherd. You want the good one, the only good one, the one willing to put it all on the line for you and me, to rescue you and then to care for you and to secure your future for you. Some of the crowd that day that heard this stuff that Jesus said, they were confused. Some were just downright mad. I wonder what our reaction is. I wonder if we're going to be angry. I wonder if we'll be indifferent. Or I wonder if we will worship at his feet as our Lord and Savior. We pray for us. God, thank you for your word. You challenge us. You challenge us with truth. You challenge us to believe. You challenge us to walk in that belief, not just to believe it, but to actually live it out. So, Lord, we've already taken communion. We've had a chance to meet with you, reflect upon your sacrifice on our behalf. You did offer that up. You didn't, we're forced to, you did it voluntarily. You knew from the foundation of the world when you spoke the creation into existence that this was going to be what you were going to do. Can you imagine living with that for all these thousand years, thousands of years of human history, that this is what you're going to come to do for us? And you never changed your mind. You never deterred from this path one moment. So we love you. We ask you to change us, continue to do that. Thanks for calling us into your flock. And if there's anybody here that hasn't done that yet, oh my gosh, Lord, how about today be the day? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.